Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, worship team. I think my favorite moment so far this morning was uh, when David, did you hear David say, go mama to LNA? <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's a call to worship, but that was fun. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to welcome you to another mundane Sunday morning. How's that for inspiring? Yeah. Bruce is down with the mundane. So what does that word mean anyway, mundane? Well, simply that we and the whole world have our routines, and we often find ourselves trudging along in the everyday ordinary activities of our lives. Now, mundane originally meant worldly, but it has come to mean dull, uninteresting, or even boring. The season of Advent is the story of God entering the mundane. For the next three weeks, we are going to be tracking with some pretty ordinary people who are taken by surprise at how God shows up in the mundane. And alongside this word mundane, on the one hand, I want us to consider another word, which is mystery. We will find in these stories from mundane lives an incredible mystery unfolding we will catch a glimpse of God's presence arriving in a way that no one had ever dreamed possible. Last week, we saw an amazing display of mystery, apocalyptic mystery in Daniel's dream as we wrapped up our series in chapter seven of that book. But previously, in the weeks leading up to last Sunday, we had seen the mundane life of Daniel the civil servant as he served kings and empires. Sure, he had some remarkable adventures, but they only came as he was simply being faithful in the little everyday things. So as Christians, we hold the mundane and the mystery together. We try to do that. And we find, often we find ourselves waiting in the tension between the two. God reveals the mystery of his glory and grace in the mundane birth of a child. The Son of Man comes on the clouds, to quote from Daniel 7, into the boring backwater of a small, ordinary town called Bethlehem. We just sang, oh, behold, the mystery now unfolds. And it's a mystery that, as Christians, we believe can change lives, that will light up familiar terrain, that will infuse the ordinary with God's hope and renewal. But... As we come to these stories again this Advent, let's be honest about the tension between the mundane and the mystery. We are sometimes, maybe often, thoroughly preoccupied by the mundane struggles of our lives. And we find it easy to lose sight of the mystery. So Advent is an invitation to wait, to wait in the tension between the pain of our disappointments and the promise of God's enduring love. We're invited to slow down, and as we've sung, to prepare him room. I love that line from the song, our hearts busy as Bethlehem. It's true, isn't it? How can we hear 
the Lord knock with all the noise we experience? How are we going to pay attention when we are so distracted? Let's pray. Lord God, we don't want to settle for the mundane. Help us this morning to behold the mystery of your reckless love. Holy Spirit, speak your words of eternal life to us today. Amen. So we are going to read from the first chapter of the gospel or the good news according to Luke. And we're starting at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you've read the stories of the birth of Jesus recently. It's something that you might want to consider doing during Advent. 
maybe on top of your regular Bible reading. If you've read them recently, or if you haven't, have you ever noticed how long it takes Luke in his version of the story of the birth of Jesus to get to Jesus? In Matthew, we find something different. Matthew lays out the family tree of Jesus, and after he does that, it only takes seven verses before the Christ child shows up. Mark, for his part in his gospel, doesn't even have a birth story. Jesus shows up as an adult in the ninth verse of his gospel. John is all about the Christmas mystery, not the mundane, and he gives us this big picture poetic vision of the Word becoming flesh. But again, it only takes him 13 verses before Jesus appears in the flesh to make his dwelling among us. Unlike the rest of them, Luke takes his sweet time. We have 86 verses in the Gospel according to Luke and a host of characters, subplots, diversions, intriguing little details before we get to the big moment, the birth of Christ. It feels to me like Luke is saying, what's your hurry? I'll get you there eventually, but linger with me a while. Can you be patient? I'm the storyteller. Will you trust me? I know you want to rush ahead to Christmas Eve, but can you wait for God? Can you find God? Are you prepared for him to meet you in the tension of whatever it is you're waiting for? Can you trust God with whatever you're longing for in your life right now? This morning, Luke presents the first detour on our way to Bethlehem. We meet Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, and we learn that they are very old, To the men in the room, don't talk about your wives or any women this way, okay? It's a real emphasis on the agedness of Elizabeth. But that's a detail that it's important for us to know. We also learn that they had no kids because Elizabeth wasn't able to conceive. And in that culture, not having children would have been considered a disgrace, as Elizabeth herself tells us in verse 25 at the end of our reading. Sometimes it was even viewed as a consequence that came directly from God. There are rare instances in the Old Testament where God punishes someone that way. But verse 6 here makes it crystal clear that God was not punishing Elizabeth and Zechariah when it says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's the point of that verse. So Zechariah was a priest from the, royal, from the priestly family of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Abijah was a descendant of Aaron. And on that day, when we pick up the story with him, he was in the temple to burn incense to the Lord, a great privilege. And it was exactly where you might expect God to show up. And, and Luke is trying to communicate here, I think, that what God is doing is in continuity with Judaism, that it flows right out of God's covenant with Abraham. In a sense, it's nothing new. And as Christians, that's one of many cues we take 
to read the Old Testament, to value the Old Covenant and the record we have of it in the Old Testament. We don't favor the New Testament over the Old. We hold them equally as revelations of God's truth. But then something radically new. The angel of the Lord appears. Zechariah is overcome, and he's shocked to learn that his elderly wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. Now, understandably, he's skeptical, so he asks the angel, how can I be sure? You know how sometimes people say there are no bad questions? Why do they do that? They, because they want you to participate, right? They're kind of coaxing you, luring you to speak up. Well, don't believe it. There are bad questions, and Zachariah asks one here. Okay, maybe that's a bit hasty on my part. It's not the question that's the real issue. For sure, God wants us to come to him with all our questions. The book of Psalms makes that very clear. The Psalms are full of prayers. Every one of them is a prayer where people honestly express their emotions, their sadness, their anger, their fear, their confusion, their distrust even of God. And that's how we're supposed to pray, not compliantly, not out of duty, or our prayers will soon dry up. What's really happening to Zechariah here is he's reacting. I think he's hurt by what the angel says. The tension of waiting in his life for so many years had given way to an acceptance of the mundane. He had reconciled himself to the outcome he was living with. But now this angel shows up and provokes him with something that is too good to be true, and he reacts. Can you relate to that? Have you had any moments where you reacted this past week? How do you react when you get bad news or when someone disrespects you? Maybe recently you had an encounter with a friend or with a stranger in which you felt wronged, where you were hurt. Or maybe there's a memory of a hurt that has left a wound that has yet to heal. Maybe you got an email in the past couple of days or a text that was inconsiderate or annoying and you haven't quite let go of it. Maybe someone criticized you. Well, we react to these things, don't we? And the words that that person spoke or wrote to us, we turn them over and over again in our heads. Maybe we go to other people. If you're an extrovert, this is likely your tendency. And we talk about our grievance over and over. It becomes this noise this preoccupation that fills our hearts. That's what I think is going on here with Zechariah. And the angel sees through the question, sees the turmoil within him, and gives him a gift that no one would ask for, that doesn't seem like a gift. The angel silences him for his own sake. He will be unable to speak and unable to hear until his child is born. 
even though Zechariah resisted God's will, I don't believe this is a punishment. It's an opportunity. Zechariah needed to learn to wait for God. Well, whatever the case, whether I'm right about that or wrong, this was not a negotiation. This was disciplinary. And Zechariah had absolutely no say in the matter. He was stopped in his tracks. God forced him to wait. Would you say that you are inclined to stop? Are you prepared to do that right now in your life with your lists of things you need to get done, with your plans for the future? How is God inviting you today to be silent and to listen to him? Sometimes he does that dramatically. Other times we just feel stuck, like we're not making progress, this kind of malaise that creeps along with us. He's in that also. So where is God asking you to wait and to trust him? It may be a health challenge you're facing. It may be the silence of discontent in a relationship, in your job, in retirement, in your studies as you search for what God's calling you to, or in some other circumstance. So right now, in the middle of the sermon, I want us to stop and to practice this silence. And I've got to warn you, it's not going to be one of those token silences. You know the ones I mean? The last two, maybe three seconds. In this silence, I invite you to name the thing that is bothering you, that is preoccupying you, that has hurt you, or the person, and simply to ask for God's help. So if, if you are comfortable closing your eyes, bowing your head, you can do that. You may want to hold out your hands and open them as kind of a gesture of openness to God. Whatever posture you're most comfortable in, that's the right place for you right now. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in the silence, we come to you with the challenge we're facing right now.
Holy Spirit, as we continue in silence, would you draw our attention to an opportunity this week, an opportunity that lies ahead this month during Advent, to make room for listening, for quiet time, to make room for you. Give us a specific picture or idea of when and where that could happen and enable us to trust that you will meet us there, that you will bless us there. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen. Today, we lit the candle of peace. But how often do we really experience peace in our hearts, in, in the church, in the world? The New Testament is full of letters to congregations that were not at peace. But God came down at Christmas to call us to peace. A few years ago, I was not at peace. I was in what you might call a fight. Not the kind where you actually punch someone, but the Christian kind, where you smile, and make motions and amendments and rise on points of order. That's how we roll in presbytery. For those of you who don't know, presbytery is the family of congregations that Courtright is a part of, about 30 of them, from here up to Harriston and Drayton, Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge. Those presbytery meetings had gotten ugly for me because I was trapped in conflict with a colleague to the point where I think I'd come to maybe even hate him. I'm pretty sure I did. I'm pretty sure I'd gotten to that point. I would speak against him in meetings, against his motions. He would speak against mine, and he was good, annoyingly good at it. But otherwise, I would avoid him. So public conflict, but private avoidance. The final presbytery meeting that year was here at KPC, and I was to preach. And Carolyn, you remember? Brian, you remember? You led worship. And as I prepared that sermon, I found myself face-to-face, not with the theological correctness that I had originally thought God was calling me to communicate to this person and a number of others, the evangelical truth. No, no, what happened as I prepared 
and as I prayed, was that I found myself face to face with my own ugliness. And the Holy Spirit gave me an idea. I'd, I'd seen this somewhere. Amnesty International had done this with um, adversaries. And I don't recall whether it was the civil war in Syria or some global conflict, though. Amnesty International had brought people together like this. And, and so at one point in my sermon, I, I called this colleague up to the front. And I had told him in advance and we sat on two chairs. So I sat, I sat right here, and he sat opposite me, about six, seven feet away. And we sat there in silence for what felt like three hours, but was actually probably only five minutes. It was awkward, it was excruciating, to tell you the truth, and in the end, he gave me a hug. God did something between us as we sat face to face, saying nothing in that silence. He brought us both to a place of repentance. It was as though Jesus had, had literally brought us back together, bridged the distance, covered our own sin and shortcoming and we forgave each other. And I don't make this, mean to make that sound easy. It, it, was, it took more than that. It took additional conversations, and, and we continued to butt heads um, on the floor of presbytery. But something shifted, something that we couldn't have made a difference to of our own volition. Silence is a gift. And when we look each other in the face, when we come to each other directly, God meets us in those moments. But we need to be silent before God to enable him to do the work that happens before those reconciling encounters can take place. We need to be silent before we can hear God's still, small voice. And when we listen, God doesn't leave us alone in the silence. The Holy Spirit speaks words of eternal life, words of peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word for it. It means wholeness on top of the other associations we have with the word peace. It means healing. It means restoration. It's the gospel, it's the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. It has already come into the world at Christmas, and it is not yet fulfilled in the life of the church, in our lives, with the brokenness we see around us. We find those words of eternal life in what the angel says here to Zechariah. Two things stand out for me. First, the baby 
who was going to grow up to be John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Secondly, he was going to go on to prepare a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit like few others in Scripture. And it was in that power that he walked the path that leads to peace. So what is the main role of the Holy Spirit? If someone asked you today, who is the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is not a what, an it. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? How would you answer? Well, one answer, and I think a chief function of the Spirit, is simply to point people to Jesus. Not to point to himself, but to point to Christ. And that's what we see John do over and over again as he prepares the way for the Lord. When he sees Jesus for the first time, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an extraordinary summary encapsulation of who Jesus was and is. And then later, John said, just as remarkably, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. And throughout his life, his ministry, he calls us to repentance. Jesus came into the world at Christmas and he comes into our mundane lives with the mystery of his grace. We cannot control it. We don't really understand it. He became less. He left his majesty, his throne, and lowered himself in order to come close, to pursue us out of love. And he laid down his life at the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is God's final word of grace and truth to you and me. Let's be silent again as we prepare him room. There's a practice in the churches of our tradition, the Reformed tradition, uh, something I grew up with, called preparatory services. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. On the Friday before communion, which 
was often, usually even four times a year, the church would gather to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And one aspect of that preparation was to exchange peace, to come to this table as much as possible without division. Now, we are broken people, and our brokenness should not keep us from coming to this table. But you know, if you've been around Courtright for a while, that we practice the exchange of the peace. During the pandemic, we haven't been able to do that. But one thing we can do without shaking hands, without embracing, as some of you I know love to do, and you're frustrated, really frustrated. One thing we can do is just to stand. So I invite you to stand with me now. And then I invite you to do a 180, to turn around and face the back of the church. And those of you who are towards the back, I invite you to keep going to 360 so that we're actually facing each other. So can you do that if you're at the back? So this, the idea here is that we're looking at each other. Um, and I'm going to invite you just to stand that way for a moment in silence. And maybe you need to pray a prayer of repentance. Maybe in the silence there's an opportunity before you come to the table, before you receive communion, to ask God for his forgiveness.